We'll hear argument uh, next in case 07526, Carcieri versus Kempthorne. Mr. Olson. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Congress squarely addressed and unambiguously answered the first question in this case when it enacted the Indian Reorganization Act in 1934. It authorized the Secretary to take land in trust for Indians, and it declared, as used in this Act, Indians were members of any recognized Indian tribe now under federal jurisdiction. The word now had the same meaning in 1934 as it does every morning in this Court when the Marshal announces that the Court is now sitting. When Congress said, now under federal jurisdiction, it did not mean then under federal jurisdiction. But that is what the government contends. In fact, the word then is the antonym for now. Now must be given its ordinary meaning, which the government concedes on, in its brief, is the date, uh, effective date of the statute. In this statute, the term now and synonyms are used repeatedly throughout the Indian Reorganization Act. The word now appears five times in the same sense throughout the Act. The word hereafter is also used. The word, the term now or hereafter is used three times. Heretofore is used three times. I mention these things because the Congress that read and enacted this statute had a keen sense of the temporal nature of the terms used in the Act. What about a poster? It says, give blood now. Pardon me, Justice Breyer. Did what about a poster? It says, give blood now. Well, I, there, it is un- it doesn't mean when it was printed. Of course, of course, Justice Breyer, there are many con- contexts in which one could conceivably, but the context would tell you. In fact, the government's, one of the government's example is the use of the word now in a will. We, of course, everyone knows that a will speaks as the date of its, the passage of the individual. There's another um, reference in the statute where the government refers to that, and, and the statute itself has a very clear different meaning. My reference to the statute and the use of the word now in this statute is very, very clear. The legislation, uh, the, the statute refers to legislation now pending. That had to mean 1934. It refers to boundaries now existing or hereafter established. It refers to uh, positions in Indian tribes now or hereafter created. It refers to lawsuits now pending or or hereafter filed. It refers to tribes now under federal jurisdiction. All of those uses of the word now are consistent. If the government was correct, the word now would have no meaning in that statute. I think it was interesting if one takes the question presented as articulated by the government. It says whether the Indian Reorganization Act uh, authorizes um, the Interior Secretary to take into trust on behalf of an Indian tribe that was not recognized, um, a, a not recognized Indian tribe under federal jurisdiction on June 18, 1934. If you take that word not and strike it out of the question presented, you get the statute. So what the government is asking for is the exact opposite of what the statute clearly requires. And all one has to do is look at the question presenting for Dennis. What about, what about the additional definition in Section 919 of, of tribe, which is not uh, limited the way the, the first sentence is? But it says, Chief Justice Roberts, it says Indian tribe. Um, and the word Indian in that very section, at the very beginning of the section, says the term Indian, as used in this Act, blah, blah, blah. So then later in that same section, it refers to Indian tribe. It's important to juxtapose, juxtapose Section 5, which is codified as 465, and Section 19, which is codified as 479, um, to, to look at the statute. The first part of Section 5 authorizes the Secretary to take land for Indians. 
Now, the way the government addresses that in the government's brief, they took the word tribe at the, at the, towards the end of Section 465 and said the statute authorizes taking land for tribes. It actually says taking land for Indians, and then in the, in the latter part of Section 5, it says title when property is taken for Indians, tribe title may be vested in an individual Indian or in a tribe. Then when you get to Section 19, Congress very carefully said, as used in this Act, the term Indian shall mean what we've been talking about here today, and that's an adjective that describes tribe later in the sentence. There's two things that the government does in their brief which I find very interesting. First of all, the government says, the use of the word Indian doesn't necessarily mean Indians. But Title I, Section 1 of the United States Code, the first sentence in the United States Code, says the word singular, the word singular shall include the plural, and the plural shall include the word singular. So the United States is disregarding that maxim. Of course, the context can always indicate something different. But the government asks you to ignore the singular plural, and then the other thing that the government does is ask you to understand that the word Indian means something when it's a noun and something else when it's an adjective, violating another primary construct, uh, construction, statutory construction. Doesn't Can't. that have to be correct? Because uh, in, in Section 19, um, it says that the term Indian means, among other things, all other persons of one half or more Indian blood. Now, the use of Indian there can't be limited. It would be circular if that definition applied to the use of that adjective. The, the, the only, yes, I understand that, Justice Alito, and, and no statute, if, if, you, if you come along um, 70 years later, is, is it not possible to find something like that? But the fact is that the only consistent way to look at that term throughout the statute. And it's the, the, I would say, first of all, it's the language of the statute. It's the context of the words in the statute, where the word Indian has to mean certain things. It has to have some limitation. Otherwise, the Secretary can do anything. And, the, and, and Congress certainly didn't intend that. But it's not just the text of the statute. It's the purpose for the statute, which was to protect and remediate Indian and Indian tribes that have been harmed by the allotment policy. What sort of of tribes were not under federal jurisdiction? Well, the use of the word tribe in that question um, is is, um, causes me to pause Uh, momentarily. Pardon me. What what what? uh, Yeah. What members of tribes were not under federal jurisdiction? Well, there were all sorts of. Indians who were not under federal jurisdiction. What the, there's a there's a document that the government produced in 19 in, in just this summer. There are four documents I urge the court to look at that the government suddenly discovered after 10 years of litigation uh, and produced in August of this summer. All of which are Interior Department documents, which support our position in this case, Justice Kennedy. What. The fact is that there were many Indians throughout the United States that were not recognized recognized as a part of tribes. They weren't groups of individuals with whom the United States had made treaties. The United States had various different relationships with groups of Indians, including tribes. Were there then were there persons of Indian descent who were not under federal jurisdiction? Yes, um, and. What, what kind of persons would those be? Persons well, without a tribal affiliation? Yes. In fact, many, many of the Indians throughout the United States were not connected or, or, or tied up into a formal tribe. What, the purpose for the Indian Allotment Act was to take tr- a land out of reservations and uh, out of the possession of Indian tribes and distribute that to, to Indians in fee simple so that they could sell it to someone else. Congress decided, the United States decided in the 30s, that that policy had been ill-served the Indians and ill-served the United States. So the Indian Reorganization Act was intended to address and remediate that. At the same time, the United States was concerned, and the Congress was concerned, that there had to be some limit. If there were Indians that had not been adversely affected by the Allotment Act, they were not intended to be, generally speaking, covered by the Indian Reorganization Act. So... 
What I mean, uh, I was saying in response to Justice Alito's question, it's not just the text of the statute. It's the purpose for the statute, which was to provide some benefits and some limitations on the damage done by the allotment policy. So it was natural when it was necessary to come up with some restriction on who would be the potential beneficiaries of this statute to look at the tribes that were under federal jurisdiction in 1934 who had been harmed in some fashion. But my understanding, maybe I've got this wrong, is there was not then, as there is now, a list of tribes that are recognized and under federal jurisdiction. So how, how do you tell in 1934 who's under federal jurisdiction? Well, what, what, what the uh, Interior Department did was, in compliance with this statute, was to set about and create a list. Well, there was a list created in 1936, as I understand it, Chief Justice Roberts. There is subsequent legislation that has to even a list act. But, but, what but I, I guess the point is that given the weight that you're placing on the word now, you would think there was some clear way to say who was recognized before then and who was recognized after that. And I, I, I just don't know what the test of recognition was in 1934. What, if what? they were drawing, if Congress were drawing a sharp line, Presumably, it would be based on a sharp distinction, and yet, as I understand it, there is no real sharp distinction. Well, there was a relatively sharp distinction. That is to say, it was Indians that had treaties with the United States or tribes that had treaties with the United States or had been recognized in some fashion by the United States government in terms of relationship between the government of the United States and the Indian tribes. Now, the Federal Register and Federal Records in 1934 were not what they are today, and that's the reason why, when these words were used, the Interior Department set about to look through the history of the Interior Department and to come up with a list of tribes that would have been covered, would have been embraced by that term now recognized but in 1934. We're told that, that that effort was ridden, ridden with mistakes. So could you have, in, in your, under your definition, a tribe that is recognized relatively recently, what was it, about 16, uh, but that was, in fact, a tribe in 1934. That is, the, although it wasn't formally recognized until later, it was, in fact, a tribe in yeah. 1934. Yes, Justice Ginsburg. In fact, to the extent that it's necessary to go back, and it, and it happened on a few occasions subsequent to 1934, that historical records were reviewed, relationships between the tribe and the federal government were reviewed. In fact, in the government's brief, the government talks about three tribes for which land was taken into trust um, that didn't fit the definition um, of now recognized, tribes recognized in 1934, we went back and looked at two of those three tribes um, were, in fact, did have treaties with the United States and would have been included. The other would have probably been included and could be concluded just exactly the way you suggested in your question. The other point that I think is very important to emphasize is that 15 times uh, since the enactment of this statute, Congress has acted specifically to apply the Indian Reorganization Act to an Indian tribe that had not been covered in 1934, evidencing con congressional understanding that it had took an act of Congress to bring a particular tribe under the act. There's these um, — Of course, I suppose if the phrase now under the jurisdiction of the United States did not have any clear meaning uh, when the statute was enacted, it, it — it wouldn't have any clear meaning for the future either. So you don't, you don't solve that problem by reading now to mean then, right? Well, what, what the, I think I understand your question. What the government wants to do is just take the word now out of the statute altogether. Yeah, I'm saying it doesn't help if you do what the government suggests. That doesn't give any clearer content to the meaning of being under federal jurisdiction. It's still going to have to be worked out somehow. The question is whether you work it out uh, and apply it as of the time of the statute or work it out and apply it uh, time by time. I see. The only way the statute makes sense is to construe now to mean 19. No, no, no. That, that's not true because now you have a very clear system. You're recognized if you're on the list. 
you don't you know, maybe you shouldn't be on the list, maybe you should be, but you're recognized if you're on the list. That wasn't the case. But, you, but Chief Justice Roberts, what it was intended, the co- members of Congress had to think of the word now meant something. In fact, there's a colloquy between Senator Wheeler and Commissioner the Indi- Bureau of Indian Affairs Commissioner Collier that's referred to in the briefs where Senator Wheeler was saying, well, there's some, some uh, groups out in, in California that are no more Indian than you or I. What are we going to do about that? And Commissioner Collier, who is the author of the act, um, says, we'll stick the word now under federal jurisdiction in there. And then he explains exactly what was meant by that, that, we'll, that it would cover tribes that existed in, 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 in 19. That w- he says, that would limit the act to Indians now, and he's speaking at the time the statute was being debated, under federal jurisdiction. Those documents that the government suddenly discovered in August of this year, which were lodged with this court in the latter part of August of this year, include a 1936 um, memor- circular letter by Commissioner Collier to all of the superintendents throughout the United States. This is the author of the statute, speaking in 1936, and he says that all, all persons of Indian descent who are members of any recognized tribe, that was under federal jurisdiction at the date of the act. Now, your point, Chief Justice Roberts, is that maybe it was unclear at the exact moment of, 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 um, of enactment which 198 or whatever number it might have been, tribes were under that. But that's the sort of information that can be discerned by looking at the history and the records so that a finite group could be identified. It isn't perfect, as Justice Ginsburg's question suggests, but it, it is a verifiable method of limiting what Congress obviously intended Mr. to Olson, limit. Mr. can I ask you kind of a, a, a maybe a too obvious preliminary question? Is there a definition of the term Indian tribe in the statute? No, not, not in it. It says Indian tribe. Um, Section 19 it defines the term Indian, but there is no definition of what an Indian tribe is. It's, it refers in the last, second to last sentence of Section 19 or 479, the ter- term tribe, whenever, wherever used in this act, shall be construed to refer to any Indian tribe. That's, that's See, that, that, that word isn't limited by time or date, is it? Well, the word Indian is, if you accept the word. Well, but the word Indian, it says it, the word Indian in the last sentence, adult Indian, wherever used in sash, shall be construed for Indians who attain the age of t- t- 21 years. Well, that just simply, in my, I submit, defines the word adult. But where, the, where, where the, are we reading from? I, we're reading from yeah, section oh. 479, which um, it's section is at page 15A of the Cartieri brief. I'm looking at the government brief. Well, ten A. Yes, yes. Now the government, I think, has the codified version of it as well as there's some change. That's what's causing me confusion. There, you're talking about. Wish we'd just use the statutory numbers, but do what you like. No, well, I'm happy to do it either way. And the the we when we put it in 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 um, in the appendix to our blue brief, we did that. Um, Thank you. And. And I think it, but nonetheless, Justice Scalia, for the purposes of this, it is quite clear that if you were a member of Congress in 1934, reading this statute and seeing the words now or hereafter, meaning now or sometime afterwards, and seeing the words now pending, now recognized, now existing, and so forth, you would think that the word now meant 1934. In fact, when this Court in 1978 was construing the statute. this am I not correct that the membership in the tribe is just one category of persons who are included in the broader definition of the term Indian? There are three categories, Justice Stevens. Right. And, and one of them is members of a tribe. Yes. Another is, is one who, uh, uh, Indians who have attained the age of 21 years, and the other is that's the other one. Um, the, the, I have never heard. The term "tribe," wherever used in this act, shall be construed to refer to any Indian tribe, organized band, pueblo, or the Indians resulted in only one reservation. Now, that reference to the term "tribe" as opposed to "Indian" doesn't have any any limit on the time. Well, if if you take the word "Indian" out, but the word it's a, the word phrase is "Indian tribe." And Congress specifically said the word Indian, wherever. Now, that's the, where the government says 
the word used as a noun doesn't mean the same as the word used as an adjective. That doesn't make any sense. The Congress was clearly talking about when it made three categories at the beginning of that sentence, Justice Stevens, it made three categories basically to cover the tribes that were recognized and then under jurisdiction in 1934. And that's the author of the statute said that in 1936. He said that in in an exchange with Senator Collier. In fact, the two other Justice Department, um, Interior Department documents that were reproduced were documents from the solicitor of the um, Interior Department to the Indian Affairs person saying the same thing in 1978, the same thing in 1980, and the same thing in 1994. And when this Court construed the statute in an indirect way uh, with respect to the uh, Choctaw tribe, in 1978, in the case of U.S. versus John, the court said well, members of any recognized bracket in 1934 tribe now under federal jurisdiction. Do you think? Do you think the meaning of that, the words specifically that were added, were now under federal jurisdiction? The word "recognized" was already in the statute, so it looks like the "now" applies to under federal jurisdiction. Now, my law clerks in doing research on this came up with a number of instances where the tribe wasn't recognized until 1976. I think that was true of something called the Stillaquamish Tribe. Yes. And it's recognized in 1976, but then they go back and they say, well, but was it under federal jurisdiction in 1934? And that seems a rather loose term uh, that includes uh, the fact that you are under federal jurisdiction if, for example, the federal government has a treaty with you that requires the federal government to do something. I suppose that's the right reading of this. Uh, then should we send this back? No. The, the, the meaning is quite clear. In fact, Justice Breyer. Well, I'm, I'm saying you're, I'm agreeing with you. The meaning. The meaning is now, but it's now under federal jurisdiction. So there would be a question. This tribe wasn't. There's, rec- there's no question that this tribe would not qualify, no. and there's no contention that it would, um, no matter how you define that. Um, and the, the very — Qualify for two reasons: a) they weren't recognized; b) they weren't under federal. In 1934 under federal jurisdiction, or either, both. Justice Kennedy, they weren't. They weren't either. Because I, I suppose what the government wants us to do is put into commas the Indians used in this section include all persons of Indian descent, comma, who are members of any recognized Indian tribe, comma, now under federal jurisdiction. That still might not help. It doesn't if they, if, if they weren't under federal jurisdiction in 1934. That's correct. It does not Even help. if they were recognized later. They can be recognized later, Justice Kennedy. In fact, Congress specifically did that 15 times between, for the first time was 1936 and the last time was 1994. You don't agree that recognized later complies with uh, this statute in your case? No, but because here's what Congress said. In each one of those 15 cases, Congress said, Shall the, Indian, the statute, including Section 5 and 19, which is what we're talking about here, shall hereafter apply. Shall hereafter apply. Shall be hereby extended. Hereby, hereby extended. So Congress, in, on 15 occasions, decided that it was necessary. Mr. Olson, let me just make sure I get this off my chest, and then I'll be, be quiet. The first <laughs> sentence in Section 19 defines the term Indian. And that's the section yeah. you're talking about. What section? Are we talking about 19 or are we talking the term about some Indian other The is used in this act. The second act refers to S. The second sentence refers to S. The third sentence defines the term tribe. The term, quote, tribe, when we're using this act. So, and in that definition, there's no reference to time. No, but it has the word Indian. No, no, I'm talking about the third. The first sentence defines the term Indian. The third sentence defines the term tribe. May I read this, Justice yeah. Stevens? The term tribe, wherever used in this act, shall be construed to refer to any Indian tribe. Right. So the word Organized Indian, band, Pueblo, or the Indians residing on one in reservation. I, I submit that for purposes of construction of the statute and using the words consistently, the word Indian modifies tribe. The word Indian is defined. That's consistent with the purpose. That's consistent with the legislative history. It's consistent but with the, the instruction. The word Indian does not modify the word tribe as used in sentence in the third sentence. That's my point. Well, I, I think I'm, you, must, you and I must be reading a different thing because 
the sentence that the the sentence that defines the word Indian says the term Indian as I'm used saying for the purpose of getting the meaning of the word tribe, just look at the sentence defining that term. That, well, word, that doesn't re, doesn't refer to any time time limit. But it does include the word Indian, which does have a temporal limitation. If it was brown cow and the word brown was defined, you would you would look to the word brown to determine what a it brown. It doesn't limit it to, to Indian tribes. It shall include any Indian tribe. Organized band, Pueblo, or the Indians residing in it? Well, I I think that the construction of the statute, including the way this Court read it in 1978, the history, the purpose that it was intended to accomplish, the use of those words throughout the statute, which are consistent, uh, all supports the proposition that it meant Indian tribes recognized and under federal jurisdiction. I assume that you think Indian modifies organized band and Pueblo as well. Yes. Um, and if, if I may, Mr. Chief Justice, reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, Counsel. Ms. Maynard. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The text of the Indian Reorganization Act supports the Secretary's action here for three independent reasons. First, Section 5 authorizes the Secretary to take land into trust for any Indian tribe. And the Narragansett tribe is a tribe, as that term is separately defined in the Act. Second, even if one looks to the definition of Indian in Section 19, the best reading of now in the first definitional example is at the time that the Act is applied. So, so the statute reads the same whether now is in there or not. You read it as saying any recognized Indian tribe under federal jurisdiction. Yes, Your Honor. And I think that if you look at the legislative colloquy, it, it, it only makes sense, the addition of now under federal jurisdiction, if what they meant by that was to use it at the time the act is invoked. Senator Wheeler's concern, as Mr. Olson explained, was that there were Indians in California who were So you're then. saying the only way that makes sense is to read it as if it weren't there? Ironically, Your Honor, I think the, the Congress added the term now under federal jurisdiction to the Act, yes, to make clear that it, it was a contemporaneous application of the term. Senator Wheeler was concerned about Indians who were already under federal jurisdiction, and he said sooner or later they must have come out from under the I'm Act. I'm not sure he was, because when I looked through that whole thing, it seemed to me what they were worried about is Senator Thomas was worried about remnants of tribes, and they were talking about an example of the Catawba Indians in South Carolina. And they had a discussion about that. And then it seemed everybody on the committee agreed that these Catawba Indians should not be included if they were only one-quarter Indian. They should be included if they were half Indian. And that meant that they had to fall within the other phrase, not the phrase that we're talking about. So then they say, how do we get this result? I mean, because they're a tribe. He says they're certainly a tribe, and they recognize the Catawbas. And then the answer to that was, uh, 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 what's his name? You know, the, the uh, Colin Collier. Collier says, I'll tell you how. We add the words now under federal jurisdiction. And he thought what he was doing was ruling out the Catawbas and only allowing the half-Indians to come in. Now, ironically, later on, in the 40s, I think, the government decides that the Catawba tribe is, in fact, under federal jurisdiction in 1934 because a treaty exists. Anyway, that's how I read it, and the California Indians were quite secondary to what they were talking about. They, did, they didn't know whether they were under a tribe or not a tribe or anything. Well, the colloquy is certainly not clear, Justice Breyer. I'll grant you that. But I do think the best reading I thought it was it, fairly clear. I, I, I think the best reading of it is that um, Commissioner Collier is addressing Senator Wheeler's concern, not the earlier concern about the Catawbas, because he says, Senator Wheeler, to Senator Wheeler, will this not address your concern? Yeah, but they brought oh. I mean, Senator Wheeler was worried about the Catawbas. Then Wheeler decides, okay, the half-Indian Catawbas fall in, but the quarter-Indian Catawbas don't. My memory of I'll go back. My memory is that it was a different senator who was concerned about the Catawbas. Where, where, where was this interesting conversation? Was it was it even on the floor of the Congress? Couldn't have been because one of the members wasn't a congressman, right? Well, it, I think it was at a hearing. Your Honor. It was at a hearing. Oh, um, learned but, a lot at hearings actually. <laughs> but it, but it, and, and if I could, that if the, going back to the text, Justice Scalia, the text of the Act 
independently supports the Secretary's reading for three reasons. The, the third being that even if one reads now in the first definitional in the first definition, to, be, to mean unambiguously June 18, 1934, the definition by its terms is expressly inclusive, setting forth the category of people that the Secretary must include, but not limiting the Secretary. He can include anybody else? He can include, for example, uh, people who are only uh, uh, one-quarter Indian blood, even though, you know, they went to the trouble of defining it as 50 percent Indian blood? I think that would be a more Very strange statute, just leaving it up to him to do whatever he wants. I think the proper way of reading, as this Court has said, definitions that start with shall include, is that there are illustrative examples of a general group. So, so, so there's no, no limitation. It, it includes this, and it, it also includes whatever else he wants. Is that it? No, Your Honor. I think an illustrative example of a general class, it would need to be some persons like the listed persons. And your, your example of a quarter blood would be more difficult, perhaps. But here, what the Secretary has done is include within the meaning of Indian persons who are every bit as much an Indian as those who were members of recognized tribes under federal jurisdiction in 1934. That, that, that's a very strange reading of shall include when you're dealing with a word that does not itself have any solid content. When you're dealing with a word that's pretty much self-defining, yeah, you can say she'll include this, because what, what in addition is included is, is, is pretty clear. But these words have virtually no, uh, no content. And if you say she'll include means, you know, it has this, I'm, I'm still left with, well, what else does it have? I, I can't believe it. The statute was meant to be that expansive, to let the secretary uh, buy land for whomever he wanted. Well, I th- it doesn't do that, Your Honor. I think both, both the definitions of, of, of tribe, for example, as Justice Stevens points out, tribe is a separately defined term, and I don't think you can work the statute in the plain text way that Mr. Olson suggests. You can't take the word Indian everywhere it appears in the statute and plug in the definition of Indian. And that's proven by looking at the definition of Indian itself, which uses the adjective Indian to define the term Indian four times. So you can't take that. Clarify one other thing for me. The sentence in question with the word uh, now in it and so forth, does that have the uh, meaning that it includes descendants who are less than a half, uh, half blood, quarter blood, eighth blood, and so forth? Yes, Your Honor. I think the straightforward reading of that would be any descendant who meets the terms of that provision would be included. So that is an expansive definition of the the term Indian, right? right. The the descendants, yes, we interpret that to mean descendants who were living on the reservation on June 1st, 1934, but they wouldn't even have to be members of tribes, and there would be no blood quantum requirement. Oh, so you apply now when you're talking about who's of Indian descent. No, Your Honor. Indian descent of those in 1934, but not when it's determining — in other words, you say the Indian descent as of when? Descendants who were on June 1st, 1934. That's not using — that's not applying the definition of the word now. That's, in fact, using the very different phrase in the second phrase where Congress used a date when it meant a date in 1934 oh, rather than the definition now. In fact, if you look at the verbs in the definitional phrase, all of them are R, 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 members of recognized Indian tribe our half-bloods, our descendants, except when they're talking about 1934, who were, on June 1st, 1934, residing on a, on a reservation. And I think the best reading of now in context, and, and Mr. Olson has pointed you to several um, per, uh, places in the text where they use now in very different clauses, now pending, now or hereafter. And we, but two places in the Act, and that's why I do think it's important to look at the Act itself, Justice Scalia, because this hasn't been codified into positive law. In two places in the Act, Section 14 and Section 18, Congress used the phrase at the time of passage of this Act. So it knew how to use that phrase. It didn't use that phrase. And now, and in fact, when those, those — What do you do about um, United States against John? There the Court, in describing an Indian uh, — Indian descent went out of their way to include in brackets the phrase any recognized in 1934 tribe now under federal jurisdiction. Well, that, that's obviously dicta in the context of the decision, but I think, in fact, the addition of the bracket shows that it's ambiguous. If it were so clear, they wouldn't have needed to add the phrase. The, the, the well, that it, it may have shown it's ambiguous, but it shows how, shows how we resolve the ambiguity. Well, the Court wasn't resolving the meaning of the first definition in John, so I don't think the Court was resolving anything, but I do think it had been so clear the Court wouldn't have needed to add the phrase. um, It's pretty clear what the Court thought it meant, though, isn't it? 
whether it's dictum or not, it's pretty clear that the, the Court thought it clearly enough meant that, that they were willing to say, bracket, you know. It's certainly not a, a holding, Justice Scalia. I agree. That, that the text unambiguously forecloses any well, other reading. It suggests, it suggests that it's not very ambiguous, I think. What do I do about the fact, looking this up, Collier and Felix Cohn, the world's authority, on Indian law, both write at the time, this means uh, under federal jurisdiction in 1934. And they, they write it, and they rewrite it, and they rewrite it. They say nothing to the contrary. I mean, they're the ones who did it. And so I'm, I have to admit, I'm pretty much moved by the fact that they thought that's what it meant. Well, apart from the Collier memo, which I would, I would like to address, the, the Secretary, when administering this Act, has uniformly, since the beginning, applied the definition that applies today. I can only find one instance, which is that Biloxi tribe, where the something, you know, the ones in Louisiana. Aside from that instance, I have not found one other instance that is inconsistent with the words now under federal jurisdiction, meaning federal jurisdiction in 1934. I don't know that list some, I'll, I'll look them up. Be I sure. don't know that the Secretary has ever undertaken to make such a list. There was no list at the time. And the Act was a forward-looking Act meant to reorganize tribes and, and, by its nature, assume that there would be no tribes. But in the 1930s and 1940s, the solicitor's opinions that we cite and discuss in our brief apply the question of whether a group is a tribe who can organize under Section 16 or can have land taken into trust for them under Section 5. The way that's organized or recognized, because what they did in several cases I found, like the one the Saquamish or whatever, they said, yes, we recognize them now. They weren't recognized in 1934, but they were under federal jurisdiction in 1934 because there were treaties that applied between the federal government and the Indians, which gave these Indians rights then. My and that, that seems consistent with what, what uh, uh, Collier and the others say. My understanding is that the Secretary interprets the recognized and under federal jurisdiction to ha not have much difference with respect to tribes. I think the under federal jurisdiction, and the Court of Appeals suggested this, might have more content when you're talking about individuals, and in fact that uh, makes that, more that's, sense. That seems to me to, uh, not to help you. Uh, because uh, if, if they're the same, then now it would apply to both. Well, Mrs. Breyer was suggesting, as I had earlier, that maybe you can make a distinction between those who are under federal jurisdiction then and recognized tribes now. And possibly you could. I don't know that that would help the Narragansett tribe here. Um, but the Secretary has always looked at whether a, whether a tribe could reorganize or have land taken to trust for them under Section 16 and Section 5, to which the same definitional definitions applied, as to whether or not the tribe was a tribe on the, at the time the Secretary was applying that decision. This is, we're, we're talking about an extraordinary um, assertion of power. The Secretary gets to take land and give it a whole different jurisdictional status, apart from state law and, and all, wouldn't you normally regard these types of definitions in a restrictive way to limit that power instead of saying whenever he wants to recognize it, uh, then he gets the authority to say this is no longer under Rhode Island jurisdiction. It's now under my jurisdiction. Well, there's, there's a competing presumption there that I think is, Chief Justice Roberts, which is that Indian statutes are interpreted uh, to the benefit of the Indian, and this was supposed to be a new deal. Well, how do we know Indian which of these benefits the Indian? I mean, have, have the Indians benefited from federal jurisdiction uh, in, in the last 50 years? Well, the Indians are the ones who made the request to have the land taken into trust, and I assume they know that, it's in, that they believe it's in their interest to have the <laughs> land what taken into trust. What are the plans that the Indians have of doing with the land once it's determined to be Indian land uh, subject to trust uh, of the federal government? The administrative record reveals that HUD um, loaned the — or granted the tribe money to, to build housing. Um, yeah, of course, the use of that land would not be limited to, to housing, right? They could engage in other activities that Indian tribes can engage in, correct? I, and according to the administrative record, there are some HUD restrictions on the land. If, you, if what you're concerned is the specter of gaming, uh, the, the, our interpretation of the, of the Indian Game Regulatory Act is, is that the tribe could not unilaterally decide to game on, on this property were it taken into trust. But as to your point, the, 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 uh, with respect to the 
clarity of these definitions. The terms Indian tribe, organized band, Pueblo, they have been interpreted by this Court in 1934 several times. In well, Montoya. The, the Chief Justice's question, and I was going to put the same question to Mr. Olson, is whether or not there is, is, is some canon of construction, some principle of federalism, um, which makes us be very cautious before we take land out of the jurisdiction of the states. That sounds to me plausible. Is there any authority for the, uh, for the proposition I just stated? Have we said that in cases? Or? Well, you said — Or have we said the opposite, that there is no such — Well, as here, I think it's very clear that the purpose of Section 5 was to allow the Secretary to take land into trust for Indians. No, no, no but is there any overriding principle that we must be most cautious before we interpret a statute as depriving a state of the ownership and jurisdiction of its lands? Uh, is there, is there any anything in the cases either way on that point? I, I don't know. I don't know. Standing here, and, and petitioners haven't cited anything for that principle I, I in their they brief. Did. Although they suggest the specter <coughs> of that, there is a competing principle that Indian sovereignty is not lightly to be set aside. Um, one important point, I think, is that the purpose of this statute, the, that the secretary's interpretation makes more sense. The the purpose of the statute was a forward-looking one. It was to revitalize and reorganize. Of course, your friend on the other side says the exact opposite. It was backward-looking. They had had the allotment policy, which they decided was not a good idea, and yet that had resulted in Indian land being turned over uh, in fee simple. And this is a way to compensate for the uh, uh, discredited uh, allotment policy. So if you weren't recognized in 1934, you were not penalized by the allotment policy, so you didn't need the benefit. That, seemed, that backward-looking perspective seems to make perfect sense. Well, the historian's brief, I think, um, makes a good case that that's not the right view of history, but the text also debunks that view. The half-blood definition is in no way limited to whether or not you were an Indian who's a member of a tribe who was allotted. The conclusion of Pueblos also makes clear that that was not the purpose of the Act because Pueblos never had their lands allotted. This was a New Deal legislation for Indians to let them revitalize. It was the beginning of what now has consistently been, uh, with the exception of the 1950s, that, you know, uh, Congress has set about to allow the Indians to govern themselves. The acquisition of land is extremely important to the ability to do that, to revive economically, to to have self-governance. The line that petitioners propose would create an entirely arbitrary result. As you read the statute, Ms. Maynard, the words now under federal jurisdiction could be deleted, and the statute would mean the same thing that you are urging. So what do the words now under federal jurisdiction add? Well, I think, as I was saying earlier, I think the colloquy reveals that what they were trying to do was make the statute um, fluid so that it would apply at the time of application, contemporaneous, move with the times. um, As I said earlier, I don't think there's much distinction between recognition and under federal jurisdiction when one is speaking about tribes. But perhaps in well, the there, there may there may not be. But let me, let me on that score take you back to an, an answer that Mr. Olson gave. Assume for the moment, for the sake of the question, uh, that we were to read this the way Justice Kennedy and Justice Breyer suggested, and that is to draw a distinction between the reference, uh, the now reference. Uh, between recognition uh, and jurisdiction uh, and say that the now refers to jurisdiction and it refers to the time of passage. If that is the way we read it, uh, should we remand this case uh, to the circuit? Mr. Olson said no. Uh, there, there is no claim uh, that, in fact, the tribe was under jurisdiction uh, at the time of passage. What is your answer? It, I, I'm, I'm not certain enough to say, Justice Souter, I'm not sure it was litigated on that on that premise. Well, tell us what you want us to do. I mean, you know, if the Court is going to take that view of the statute, then I suppose a remand is preferable to let it be worked out. But the Secretary's practice — In any case, you are not here to represent that, in fact, we may assume that there was no jurisdiction over the tribe at the time of passage. You know, I just don't know that it's ever been looked into from that perspective. If, especially well, if, if, it the hasn't, then, if it hasn't, then you're not in a position to make the representation uh, that, that Mr. I think Mr. Olson's answer suggested uh, would, would be a correct one. 
I believe that the Secretary's interpretation from the beginning, as I suggested before, has, has understood recognition and under Federal jurisdiction, at least with respect to tribes, to be one and the same. And the, the, if, if the Court were to draw a distinction, and, you know, it's the, from the beginning of the 1930s and the 40s, the opinions show that what the Secretary looked at was at the fact of the time of, as in 1964, there were published regulations interpreting Indian and tribe, not limited by the But uh, are we in a position — I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go on. No. Are, we, are we in a position uh, to, uh, to draw or accept that conclusion here? I mean, that, that, that wasn't worked out. Shouldn't we remand and, and have that specifically addressed and, and specifically address the question of, of jurisdiction? Which, which wasn't working out. Well, uh, you, you, were, you were saying that, the, that a distinction simply had not been drawn uh, at, the, at the BIA level, I guess, between jurisdiction uh, and, and recognition. And I don't, think, I don't think we're in a position to say, yes, that's so, or no, that isn't so. Uh, so that would seem to me to argue for a, a, a remand in and of itself. Well, I think Would you there, agree? Well, if the Court limits its view to, to the one definitional example in the IRA, then perhaps a, re, a remand is certainly preferable to a reversal. But there is no need to remand, because there are two separate reasons for the petitioners to prevail here, the, the text has to unambiguously foreclose the possibility. I wouldn't know that, that that's so, because the, the, the question I ask myself on that is, were I in Congress, is this the kind of thing I would have delegated to the Secretary to decide? And it's very hard for me to think that Congress wanted to delegate the power to the Secretary to decide whether now happens to mean 1934 or now means any time in the future. Well, I mean, that's something Congress would decide. They meant by now 1934, or they meant by now any old time it's applied. Now, now you could argue that both ways, but why would you want to delegate? What human being would want to say the meaning of the word now is something I'm leaving to the Secretary? Even if you think, Justice Breyer, that now unambiguously means June 18, 1934. There are two other. No, no, I'm not saying it unambiguously means it. That's even not if, what I'm saying. E I'm saying it's totally ambiguous. But what the Secretary has to say about it is uh, enlightening only insofar as the Secretary knows more about it than I. That's fine. But not insofar as it delegates power to the Secretary to make up his own mind. Well, I think that one, if one can't tell from the text, Chevron and other principles say you allow the Secretary, in light of his understanding of the purposes of the statute, the plight of the Indians, contemporaneous things to decide what the statute means. But there are two other provisions in the statute that, apart from that, the other side for them to prevail, the statute has to unambiguously foreclose the taking of land into trust for tribes, setting apart the example of Indian. And, and, and the, the definition of tribe is, as Justice Stevens pointed out, it's separately defined. Can, that I, had an can I ask you a question? It seems to me that the, the limited definition of the tribe really is quite irrelevant to, the, to this case. The term India is defined to include two classes of persons, one who are members of certain category of tribes and others who are half, more than half Indian blood. It seems to me it would — then you get to the definition of tribe becomes later. It seems to me that when you're talking about the de definition of tribe, the statute would have exactly the same meaning. Instead of it limiting by time of 1934, it said tribes located west of the Mississippi. If they just limited to that, that wouldn't have limited the, the definition of Indian. I mean, the de definition of tribe. It would made the category of, of persons of Indian descent who are eligible to be treated as Indians and whose eligibility is determined by tribal membership, limited, but be not include all tribes. So you could limit it to, say, as I say, tribes west of the Mississippi. But then when you get down to defining the term tribe, there's no such definition. So that I just think the fight about what now means is totally irrelevant to the meaning of the definition of tribe. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. And I think there might have been reasons, as the Court of Appeals concluded, they might have wanted to limit the definition of Indian and the benefits the Act allows individuals, but not limit the Act's coverage of tribes. I'm, interested, five, I'm interested in the Secretary's conclusion that recognized tribe and tribe now under federal jurisdiction are one and the same, that the words are just redundant. We, 
does he know the rule that we usually don't? I guess he doesn't because he interprets now to mean nothing. Does he understand that we usually do not interpret words to have no meaning? Why would they say both if they both mean the same thing? Well, I think maybe I'm, I, I didn't Recognize tribe under federal jurisdiction. That, that to me means two different requirements. I think it could capture tribes that were previously recognized but that either disband or become, um, become not, not vibrant. But in terms of currently recognized tribes, tribes that the Secretary today recognizes as tribes that have always been tribes, and that's all we're talking about here, tribes that were tribes before European contact, have had a, a cohesive political entity since that time, and that's what the Narragansetts the are. The difficulty with the tribe thing, I think it's a very difficult case, a hard time. But the difficulty with the word tribe is that either that tribe has some people in it who are Indians or it doesn't, right? That has to be true. Now, if it has some people in it who are Indians, i.e., a person who falls within the definition of Indians, then, of course, the Secretary can take land for that because the whole thing is for the purpose of giving land to Indians. But let's imagine a tribe that has no Indians in it within the definition of the Act. You're saying that this Act would give to the Secretary the power to take land for an entity that has no members within the Act. Now, that is pretty hard for me to accept. Two points, Justice Breyer. There's nothing in the definitional section that requires the grafting of Indian onto the definition of tribe. It, well, there's one thing. It says it's for the purpose. We, we, we give the Secretary the power to take land for a tribe for the purpose of giving land to Indians. But in and now we have assumed a tribe that has no such member, because Indians has the special definition. But later on in Section 5, it says we can take land and trust on behalf of an Indian tribe or an individual Indian for whom the land is required. I, I, don't, I don't understand how you say that, that, that the term tribe has no limitation to Indians. I, as the term tribe, whenever used in this act, shall be construed to refer to any Indian tribe organized band, Pueblo, or the Indians residing on one reservation. Well, perhaps it grafts on to the last clause where Indians residing on a reservation. But it can't graft on to Indian tribe, Justice Scalia, because Indian tribe is used to define Indian as well. The whole thing is circular. Well, it's, and it's, it's, well, circular definitions are nothing unusual in, in the legislation that Congress but comes it, up with. That may be so, but it doesn't unambiguously foreclose the Secretary's interpretation here. And that must be — they must show that it unambiguously what, what meaning, forecloses — What meaning do you think this sentence has when it says the term tribe shall be construed to refer to any Indian tribe, organized band, Pueblo, or the Indians residing on one reservation. This Court had interpreted — interpret that not to, not to be limited to Indian tribes. In Montoya, this Court had interpreted in, in an earlier statute the term Indian tribe and organized band to mean a distinctly Indian community that shared political, ethnic, and cultural uh, Indian, attributes. Indian community. So if we're looking for a definition of Indian, we go back to the first sentence. But the definition of Indian uses the adjective Indian to define it four times, Mr. Chief Justice. That can't be clear. You can't take their, their plain text argument where you just take the well, word Well, if it Indian. does it four times, we ought to give effect to it at least once. It says, <laughs> it says Indian tribe now under federal jurisdiction. It seems to me that that is the key restriction and that it's not taken away by that last sentence, which, again, reiterates that it's Indian tribe. And in, in the last clause to which you refer, it's still Indians residing on one reservation. Well, the — Defined term. Yes, and, and, and I grant you that it may graft on to the last clause, but it doesn't graft on to Indian tribe, organized land, or well, Pueblo. It just describes the subcategory of Indian tribes in who, for whom members can qualify even though they ha don't have half-blood. That's the point. It picks up people who are less than half-blood if they're members of those tribes. Well, but if you look broadly at the Act, Justice Stevens, there are provisions that are meant to address tribe issues and tribal issues. And, and, and I think that it, the purpose of the Act, it makes more sense to read tribe as a — is not limited by the date and the provisions that apply to tribe, which is how the Secretary has always read it. Then Collier himself would have been wrong, because Collier in this great famous colloquy says, when he adds these four words, he says to the committee, that would limit the act to the Indian. The act would be limited to the Indians now under federal jurisdiction, except that other Indians of more than one-half Indian blood would get help. 
So what he's thinking in his mind is you have any kind of entity or a person who's more than one-half Indian blood, fine, the Secretary can act. But suppose we have an entity that has only people who have less than one-half Indian blood, then they're out of luck unless they are now under federal jurisdiction. I, as we I discussed earlier, I don't agree with the, your reading of the colloquy. I do think it's ambiguous. I think, at a minimum, the statute doesn't foreclose the Secretary's interpretation of the provisions. An Indian used in Section 1 clearly is not the Indian defined in Section 19, because Section 1, they talk about Indians who have entered into treaties, and that would have included both Indians who were and were not under Section — under — meet the definition of Indian in Section 19, nor would plugging that definition into Section 1 make very much sense. Um, the, uh, if I could, just before time runs out, there, if the Court gets to the second question, uh, as we think you should, the, the, the Settlement Act clearly does not repeal the Secretary's authority to take land into trust. And if the Court has any questions about that, it addresses jurisdiction in Rhode Island expressly and limits Rhode Island's jurisdiction to the settlement lands. It contemplates that the Secretary may someday take land into trust on behalf of the tribe. Other acts, similar acts, do expressly address that question. Um, unlike the Rhode Island Act, they have similar extinguishment provisions, and yet um, they, they went on. I just think Rhode Island extinguishment provisions just don't have the meaning that, that petitioners say. Um, of course, if we dis- — I'm sorry to <clears throat> jump back to the other provision, but if we disagree with your interpretation and Congress thinks we're wrong, they can pass another one of these 15, 16 provisions that they've had that says this tribe is, is recognized now. They could. If I could make one point in response to that. Congress has already acted on the presumption that the Secretary's reading is correct. In ILCA, Section 2719, there is an exception. It's in, it's in the back of our brief on page um, 30 uh, — IGRA, sorry, IGRA, page 35A, that lands are taken into trust as part of an initial reservation of any tribe acknowledged by the Secretary under the federal acknowledgement process. In other words, Congress — understands the Secretary to have the authority to take land into trust for tribes that have been newly recognized under the Secretary's acknowledgement process. Well, then, I'm sorry to keep you there longer than you may want to be. Well, why, uh, why, El- why would Congress then enact these 15 or 16 separate provisions uh, if they think the uh, — if in this provision they think it's not necessary? In, in the ones of which I'm aware, I think just to make it clear, beyond doubt, that, that Section 465 applies to the tribes. Often the, the, the ones that I know of just have a list of statutes and say these are going to now apply to, to the tribe. Um, in, in, in other acts, Congress has acted. In fact, it's amended uh, Section 16 of the IRA in 1994. And there have been decades since 1964 the Secretary has interpreted Section 16 to apply to any recognized Indian tribe, and Congress amended it to add four and F and G to, to instruct the Secretary to treat all recognized tribes the same. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Olson, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Let me start with um, Justice Kennedy's question, and I think one other justice asked about other canons of construction, specifically with respect to sovereignty of states. Um, this Court said in Vermont Agency in 2000, if Congress is to alter the constitutional balance between states and the federal government, it must make its intention to do so unmistakably clear. And, Justice Kennedy, I think you asked that question in the context of the relationship between states and Indian tribes, and I would refer the Court to Seminole Tribe, in which the Court said the Congress must unequivocally express its intent to abrogate states' immunity. As the Chief Justice was pointing out, this is a very broad grant of authority if it is what the government says it is. The Secretary can take property from the state, particularly a small state like Rhode Island, but it would be the same anywhere, and strip the state of jurisdiction and give jurisdiction to a dual sovereign operating within that state. We submit that the legislative history, the legislative language, the legislative purpose, the contemporary construction of the statute by the author of the statute, and everything stands for the proposition that there was some limitation intended here. I think the government overlooks the fact, and it somewhat misstates it, by saying land may be taken for tribes. I've heard that several times, not just in the brief, but during oral argument. Section 5, which is the grant of authority, says the Secretary is authorized to take land for the purpose of providing land for Indians. 
And then Section 19 defines the term Indians. Now, it may, once it decides that it may take title, it may take land for Indians, it can then vest the title, in, as, as it says at the end of Section 5, in individual Indians, individual Indian, or tribes. But it takes lands for Indians. They have to be Indians or land cannot be taken. Um, the other canons of construction, besides the ones that must recognize state sovereignty, is that words must be given their ordinary meaning on absent of a contrary context. Words are not to be considered to be superfluous. Um, the, there are several instances of uh, efforts to repeal by implication in the, in the government's brief, and I could go on and on. There are several violations of various canons of construction. The colloquy is clear when it's put in context. It's exactly what I think you were getting at, Justice Breyer. There's a difference between um, Indians um, uh, under jurisdiction, which is what uh, Mr. Co Commissioner Collier meant, and Indians that may have had some connection with the federal government. That whole colloquy is explained quite clearly in the, gov in the document the government discovered in August. In, it's dated 1980. It's a memorandum by the assistant solicitor. Um, and it explains it. It explains the context. Section, the tribe was not, this, this particular tribe, I submit, and, and we would describe this, uh, this question came up um, in a couple of the questions, was this tribe under federal jurisdiction and should the case be remanded? I know of nothing that suggests that it was under federal jurisdiction. I invite the court to look at page seven of our brief. If the, the tribe was under state jurisdiction, under state control, and there's a reference to that and an ex explanation of it in the joint appendix uh, at pages 21A and 23A. Uh, I don't have time to elaborate on that, but that is answered there. Um, U.S. But first. How did it get to be recognized? I thought the recognition reflects that it's had a history going way, way back. It had the the the, the group of of uh, Indians called the Narragansetts. Yes, have history that does go way back. But the relationship with the federal government is what was being considered when the Indian Reorganization Act is, and that relationship did not exist at that time. U.S. versus John, the bracketed phrase, doesn't mean that that phrase was ambiguous. The Court clearly understood that it meant 1934, the same as Commissioner Collier meant and the same as the statute indicated. It doesn't show that it was ambiguous. The Court was speaking in 1978, so it was quite natural to instead use the word now to put in bracket 1934. And it was necessary to get to that question of Indian blood, which the Court finally got to in U.S. versus John, to Otherwise, they wouldn't have needed to get to that question um, if it had been an otherwise answered um, at, with respect to the meaning of Section 19. Thank you, Counsel. 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 Case is submitted.